Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Good morning. Let me uh, extend my welcome to you. My name is Paul. I serve as part of the leadership team here as pastor at Thurfield Chapel. Um, I think for many, I've not had an opportunity to wish a happy new year. So happy new year. It's good to see you. Happy New Year if you're watching uh, online, wherever you are. Uh, We are doing something slightly different uh, this week. As Andrew said, next week we're going to be going back to Luke's Gospel, which we were starting to look at in the autumn term. So do bring those uh, Luke Bible journals with you if you've been using them and writing in them. We'll be using them next week. This week, in our New Year, uh, it's kind of a time where you take an amble through the countryside, isn't it? And we're, we're doing that, but we're going through... Uh, the book of Kings. Now, uh, the reason we're going through Kings is because in Luke chapter 4, which we're going to look at next week, Jesus makes reference to Elisha and the widow at Zarephath, uh, uh, sorry, Elijah and the widow at Zarephath, and Elisha and Naaman. So uh, we looked at Elijah last week. We're going to be looking at Elisha this week. So we'll be taking a few things in as we go through this passage, pointing uh, a few things out. Uh, and see what it is that God has to show us. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that you would open our eyes to see uh, wonderful things uh, in your word as we spend time now uh, looking, meditating on what we've read, that we may see your glory uh, displayed in Christ. Amen. Right, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take this off. One, because it's warmer in here than it has been in the past. Thank you to those who've changed the heating system so it's nice and and ready for the winter. I'm going to move this round. I'm crackling. Hopefully it's not an issue with the cable. It might be. We'll keep going uh, and we'll see what happens. New Year. New Year. How are you feeling at the beginning of the new year? Are you filled with that hope and with that anticipation? A new year lies ahead. Maybe already you're feeling a bit tired, a bit worn out, a bit down. Now, maybe things are just going to continue as normal. The magic of Christmas is gone. Christmas is this sort of magical time. And it was was great to see new faces. I know many people were encouraged to have their friends and their their relatives and their family here. Now, hearing something of, of the gospel message over that period of Christmas. But now maybe they're not sitting next to you. We start to wonder, you know, is it, is it just going to be the same? That magic of Christmas has gone. And yet, even in those situations where it seems like nothing's happening, where it seems like everything's continuing as normal, in those situations where, where life doesn't seem favorable, God is still working. And we see that in our passage this morning, that God is working. He's working to build his kingdom. He's working to bring people into that experience of life with him. So we're in two kings. Exactly where are we? Uh, I can't remember whether I've used this diagram before. I feel like I have, but I don't think looking through some of my PowerPoint notes I have. This, this is something maybe that we'll use when we go through different books that might help us just to gauge roughly where we are. So in the Bible, we've got New Testament, we've got the Old Testament. Uh, New Testament is how Jesus is the fulfillment now, of all that is written in the history of Israel, God's purposes, God's promises, that's brought to fulfillment uh, in Christ. This diagram here, just to give us a rough idea of you know, where things fall in that story. The scripture is comprised of 66 books, but it's one story. 
So if God's dealing with humanity, bringing us back into his presence, that we may know the blessing of being in fellowship uh, with him. So we've, we've got a New Testament here, Old Testament over there. This is the one with the funny thing, isn't it? That's fine. And thanks, Ben. Great. This is divided just roughly on uh, Matthew's genealogy uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and then also the division in Luke Acts. I've also nabbed it from a guy called Graham Goldsworthy, in case you're wondering where something, something of this image comes from. But when we're in the Old Testament, now that basically takes us from the very beginning up until Christ. And there are these different stages. If you just want some sort of marker points of where we're at, uh, and this is from the genealogy of Matthew's Gospel, Abraham, David, to exile, and then to the Messiah. Then we get into the New Testament. New Testament comprised of sort of two main things. The, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and then after his death and resurrection and ascension, the ongoing, continuing work of Jesus like through his church by the power of the Spirit. That's where we live now. At that point now, this, this work continues. Uh, but where are we uh, at this point uh, in time? So we are in the book of two kings this morning. One and two kings, it's this united work. It was divided into just for reasons of length. We're in a period roughly about 850 BC, here in the ministry of Elisha. And um, what's the story so far? So for those of you who've been here for our series in Luke, you may recall we've been looking at how God's intent, his purpose from the very beginning, is that the blessing of his presence extend over the whole earth. We see that right at the beginning. Now in that garden with humanity and God's blessing, be fruitful, be multiply, fill the earth, expand the borders. The blessing of God's presence to fill the whole earth. But as humanity, we rebel, we reject this. We embrace the lie that God's the enemy. And so instead of extending the blessing of God's presence, what extends uh, is curse, is death, is destruction, is violence. God's not content to leave it there. God is committed to his promises and his purposes. And so he calls this guy called Abraham, at that point known as Abram. So there we are, kind of on the marker of our chart. Uh, and he makes this promise, and through Abraham, he is going to continue uh, to bring blessing. Through Abraham's line, through his descendants, extend the blessing of his presence over the whole earth. Now, we're going to fast forward now to the book of Kings. Uh, and Kings comes to us. Kings basically covers the period uh, between David and exile at the very end of David's reign through to exile. So the book of Kings begins really with Solomon, uh, David's son. Uh, and this is a great high point uh, in the history of the people of God. Now, there is peace in the land, there's prosperity, and God has made this promise to David, he has made this promise to Solomon, his son, and Solomon builds this magnificent temple, this place where God has promised to dwell with his people, the blessing of God's presence there among the people of God. It's all looking good, it's looking promising. Solomon, uh, he prays uh, this prayer at the dedication of the temple. So this is towards the beginning of Kings 1, Kings 8, and says, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house that I have built bears your name. 
And we see something of this prayer answered uh, in today's passage. So this is a high point. This is a point of hope. But then things start to go downhill. Later in Solomon's reign, he turns away from following God. Uh, He marries all these pagan women in this hope of creating alliances with different nations, of making the nation strong. They turn his heart away from God. Now, idol worship uh, is introduced. And God, in his judgment, he divides the kingdom in two. So after Solomon, under his son, the kingdom is divided in two. You have uh, the northern kingdom, which is known as the northern kingdom of Israel from that point on. Uh, And then you have the kingdom in the south, uh, the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is where we've been having our focus and attention these last two weeks. So as as Paul uh, last week was taking us through Elijah, Elijah's operating in the northern kingdom, Elisha too uh, in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom ignores God's revelation. uh, And basically they decide we're going to start worshipping God the way the other nations do. We're going to set up uh, our own systems of worship. And this reaches a new low, as we saw last week, with King Ahab, who introduces the worship of a god called Baal. Things like child sacrifice that are thrown in there too. And so God sends the prophet Elijah to turn people back to God. Uh, And Elijah comes with this message that Baal is not God. Baal is not going to bring you rain and prosperity. There'll be no rain uh, in this land. And this culminates with this contest uh, on this place called Mount Carmel. And the result is all the people who are there, they fall face down and they cry out, the Lord, he is God. I mean, it looks like revivals in the air. Things are about to turn, things are about to change, but they don't. And the queen basically says to Elijah, you're a dead man. Now, you would think at this point with all the people acknowledging that the Lord is God, that it's going to go in this good direction, that Jezebel, the, the queen, is going to have no power But no, revival was in the air and nothing happened. And Elijah runs away disillusioned to the wilderness. There he thinks it's game over. This is is the end. There was a great opportunity, a hope of revival here, but now there's nothing. God comforts him. God says this isn't the end. There's still a small group. There's still a a remnant of people who, who faithfully follow the Lord. And then Elijah is sent out with this new job. He's recommissioned. And one of the things that he is to do uh, is to anoint, to appoint his successor, this man called Elisha. And so that's where we're at. Now, that's the context here uh, of 2 Kings 5. We're in the northern kingdom, this northern kingdom that was meant to, the people of Israel were meant to reflect God to the nations, to bring the nations in to God. That was Solomon's prayer at the beginning. But what we see and what has happened is that this kingdom instead reflects the nations around them and they push God away. And God's judgment is looming here on this nation. And yet this story is full of hope. And we see hope because God is still committed to his purposes and to his promises. And here in 2 Kings 5, we see God bringing this outsider, this enemy, and bringing them in and bringing them to be one of his people. 
You know, the surrounding culture that we live in, it may be apathetic. At times it may be hostile, but that isn't a hindrance to God. And our hope, now this year, this new year, our hope for change, our hope for transformation, now in our lives and the lives of those we love in the community, our hope of seeing people come to know and to experience the life and the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, it is not based on us having the perfect environment. It's not based on all the circumstances being how we we imagine them to be, to, to have that sense of revival in the air. Our hope is not based in having the perfect set of, of circumstances, the perfect environment. Our hope is in God. That's where our hope is to be found. He is the one now who causes flowers to grow out the dirt. He's the one who brings change and transformation. And so here we have Naaman. Verse 1, a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now Aram is uh, a nation that's on the northern border. Uh, you can see it there. It's in gray. It's marked as Syria. It's also modern day uh, Syria. So Aram was his nation uh, on this northern border that was in conflict with Israel. And in those days, if you're engaged in conflict and your nation won, the interpretation was, is because our God is better than your God. And that's why we win, because everyone had their, their tribal gods. And so if we've won victories, it's a sign that our God is better than your God. But what do we read of here? Why is it that Naaman experiences victory? Not because the God of Aram is great. No, it is because the Lord had given victory through Naaman to Aram. See, the Lord who is Lord over Israel is not just restricted to Israel. He's the Lord over Aram. He's the Lord over all. God is not restricted in his work. Now, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He's Lord over Thurfield. No, he's Lord over Royston. He's Lord over Bygrave. He's Lord over Barquay. No, he's Lord over Bourne and Camborne. No, he's Lord over Letchworth. No, Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord, whether people acknowledge it or not. Whether people are aware of it or not, Jesus is Lord. God is not limited in his work. God is above all circumstances. And he works through them to bring about his good purpose. Now, there's a huge rabbit hole. We could kind of go down here. We don't have time to do that. But God is above all circumstances. We don't need to have the right, the perfect circumstances. Because God is above it all. It was great uh, hearing from a number of you over the Christmas period about uh, maybe some friends or some relatives who, who came along to the, the services and circumstances seemed to be working against them. And yet God was working in and through that. Uh, and the encouragement to hear from you just saying, seeing that this is what God has done. Uh, and it may seem like a small thing, but it's a significant step. Those that we know and we love, having that opportunity to hear something of the gospel. God is above the circumstances of our life. Those circumstances are significant, 
but they don't determine how the story is going to end. God is above all. And so we have Naaman, and unaware, you know, God is working, God is working in Naaman's life, working through these circumstances. He's a valiant soldier, but he has something called leprosy. Now, in the Bible, leprosy is actually used as an umbrella term. Uh, it covers a variety of infectious skin diseases. And something of the symbolism of leprosy was that it, it showed a life that was subject to decay and to death. Leprosy was this visual reminder that lepers were sometimes seen as kind of the walking dead. And so here's this man, Naaman, and for all his achievements, for all his attainments, they're subject to decay and to death. And that's true for all, isn't it? Now, we maybe try to forget it. We try to push it to the back of our mind. Our culture is not something that we like to think about. But the reality is all are subject to decay and death. And the reason Scripture tells us is because ultimately we all turned away from the God who's the giver of life. All are subject to decay and death. We try to push it to the back of our minds every now and then. Sometimes things happen. We experience things in our lives, these vivid reminders like Naaman of decay and death. And sometimes they can, they can serve as a mercy because they serve to remind us of the thing that we are so often to forget, so often to push to the back of our minds, the fact that life is not found within us. We don't possess life within ourselves. And the many things that we can pursue, we don't find life in them either. The life is found in God. Now, despite Naaman's uh, many achievements, he was subject to decay and death. He couldn't cure himself of his leprosy. He couldn't give himself life. God could. God can. God does. And so bands of raiders from Aram, they'd gone out and they'd taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. And we're told, verse 3, she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And just some simple words from this girl. This, this young girl who's been snatched out of her home. And God uses this to bring about this change and this transformation. This young girl who's been exiled from her home, she's been plucked out of that home, and yet what is God about to do? What is God doing through this? Where the master of her household is going to be brought to God, brought into his kingdom. She's been taken out from her home, but through this, God is about to transform the home that she is in. This is going to become something of an outpost of God's kingdom. Again, this is God's gracious working in circumstances that look like that they're working against the people of God. Look like it's working against God's purposes. And God is working. And so Naaman goes to his king, the king of Aram. And the king of Aram says in verse 5, Yeah, I'll, I'll send you off. You know, here's this letter uh, to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver. You may see in the footnotes 
uh, of your Bibles there, that's 340 kilograms of silver. And 6,000 shekels, that's 69 kilograms of gold with 10 sets of clothing. Now, the, uh, the equivalent uh, amount of money based on that weight of silver and gold uh, and on today's exchange rate uh, would work out to be about half a million pounds. So 10 sets of clothing uh, and half a million pounds goes out to the king of Israel. Because Naaman and the king of Aaron, they assume that the way that you get an audience with God's prophet, that you get an audience with God, uh, is the way you do that with a king. No, you, you pour out gifts. You want to curry favor. Their view of, of God is that really God is just this bigger version of an earthly king. But God's not like us. And this view that they have of God is going to be challenged. God is not like us. God's not just a bigger version of us. God's completely different. God's in his own category. If you want to categorize things in life, you've got God, and then you've got everything else. That's how it works. There's one of the the kind of meanings behind the word holy, that God is in his own category. He's unique. There is nothing like him. There is no one like him. Which means that we can't look at ourselves. We can't just look at the things around us and kind of upscale those things uh, as though that's what God's like. God's not just a bigger version of us. God has to reveal to us what he is like. And that's what he, he does. That's what he's done. He's done it through history as recorded in, in Scripture. And ultimately, uh, fully uh, in Jesus Christ himself, God with us. Because God is not like us, and yet, we're called to be like him. We're called to reflect something of him. And that's, that's something of the tragedy here in this account. Because God had called the nation Israel to himself to reflect him to the nations, to show the nations what he was like. And Israel just became like the nations. And so Naaman, the king of Aram, their view of God is, well, he's just like any other earthly king. He's like any other God that we would worship. Their view hasn't been changed. It hasn't been challenged by the people of God. A question, a challenge for us as Thurfield Chapel. Do we reflect the life of Christ? Or do people continue in their misunderstandings about Jesus because they don't see anything different in us? God is not like us, but we are called to reflect him. And so when Naaman comes to Elisha, he doesn't encounter what he expects. And he goes away in a rage. Verse 11, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he went off in a rage. See, what Elisha 
does, or in some ways doesn't do, is an affront to Naaman, to his position, to his expectations. He He doesn't get what is expected. He's offended by the simplicity of the command. He's offended by the gift. Now, maybe at Christmas uh, you received a you know, sort of body deodorant spray set. That's the kind of gifts you get, don't you? You see it in, in boots. It's kind of a funny and a risky gift because people could easily take offense at that. Are you saying that I smell? Is that why you're giving me body wash and deodorant? And yet the reality is, you know, if we do smell, it's a good gift to get. It's a necessary gift to get. And yet we could feel offended by it. And when we're offended by things, we dismiss those things. And the very thing that we need, we can dismiss because we're offended by it. The gospel message causes offense. Because it tells us that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God. There's no feats that we can achieve. There's no amount of good works. And that there's something wrong with our lives. It's a message that causes offense. And in a world and a culture, you know, where we're told you can be what you want to be. And you can achieve what you want to achieve. And you can just plow that root out and break new ground. And the gospel tells us you cannot be your own savior. You cannot save yourself. There's not a multiple of ways. And you can't make your own way. There's a message that causes offense. Yeah, it's the very thing that we need. The gospel tells us that there is a Savior. There is one who has done everything that is needed, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God has done it for us. And that through Jesus' life and through his sacrificial death for our sins and his resurrection and ascension and the pouring out the Spirit, that we can experience, we can know forgiveness with God and be brought back into fellowship with him. And experience life now, a life that will go on into the ages to come, to be in God's presence. It's a thing that we need. It's a good message. That's why the gospel means good news. And yet it can cause offense. Sometimes when we're offended, we just dismiss that thing. Yet we can dismiss the very thing that we need. Now, we... We're in a culture that takes offense quickly. When we're offended, let's not just automatically dismiss things. Let's test uh, and see and, and to look at those things. And maybe for you this morning, that means looking at the gospel for the first time. Maybe for others of us who've, who've come to know Christ, that when the words of Christ offend us, that we don't just park it to one side and say, I want nothing to do with that. Now, the very thing that we need, good gifts, can cause offense. Naaman was offended. He goes off in a rage until his servants they come and they help him to see sense. He goes down them, verse 14. Dips himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. The simplicity of that command he obeys and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Uh, But this isn't the only change and transformation that has happened in his life. Not just this outward cleansing. Have a look down at verse 17. 
So having sought to, to offer these gifts, and Elisha saying, no. Uh, Naaman says, well, please then may I be given as much earth as a pair of mules can marry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Now there's an assumption behind this. Uh, for Naaman, and particularly the culture at that time, that to worship God, you needed to worship on the, the territory, the soil uh, of that nation. That's why he's taking this soil with him. Now, we now live in an era where we worship God through Christ, not based on being in this building or any other building, or any particular one place. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, Jesus said. Jesus has made that possible, that now we can come to him. Uh, Naaman, though, notice what lies behind this taking of the soil. That he is wanting to worship the Lord as the one true God. Your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. This isn't Naaman just adding the Lord to, to this collection of gods. It's not just tagging him onto the worship of the local gods of Aram. Now, this is a complete change and a transformation, a reorientation of his priorities. That the Lord becomes his Lord and his only Lord and his only master. We see something here, a picture of, of true repentance, of what it means to be brought into to life in Christ. And repentance is not simply adding Jesus to our lives as though he's some sort of bolt-on to our phone contract. Just adding Jesus in and continuing uh, as though nothing else has changed. Now, so as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for our loved ones, as we pray for this community, now let's be praying not simply that people receive Jesus as though we can receive him and just tag him onto our lives, uh, but praying for this dynamic, this radical experience of coming to know Christ that just changes and reorientates our, our priorities, that we see Jesus for who he is. Because this is what God does. He brings the outsider in. He brings those who are, are far away. And he brings them near. Now, there's much that Naaman didn't know. There was much that he misunderstood. There was much that he got wrong. He was a commander of an army that was attacking Israel. But God didn't bring Naaman to himself because he ticked certain boxes. It's like, well, you know, he's almost there. I'll give him that little nudge. This is a sign of God's grace. The grace and the goodness of God. That he would bring people. He's brought us who were far away and brings us near. Now that's our reason for hope this morning. That's our reason for hope in this coming year, for change and transformation uh, in the lives of our, our communities, in the life of this nation, this world, in our own lives. It's not because we tick certain boxes. It's because God is good. God is gracious. God is great in power as we've sung this morning. God brings the outsider and he brings them in and he brings them near. But that's not just where the passage ends this morning. It doesn't just end with Naaman, an outsider, being brought in. It ends with one who is on the inside. 
being cast out. Verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. Surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. And the story of Gehazi really reflects something of the story of the northern kingdom of Israel. Those who were meant to reflect something of God, and yet just reflects the life of the surrounding nations. And Gehazi here, he doesn't reflect the heart of God. Because originally Naaman comes with this you know, great multitude of riches in order to kind of purchase his healing, to get an audience with God, because that is what you would do uh, with the other nations. But God is not in need of anything. God is not like these false views that we have of God. God is the good and the generous giver. And God gives not because of the abundance of our gifts, but because of the abundance of his grace. And Elisha wouldn't let Naaman misunderstand that. He would not accept any gifts from him. But the Gehazi thinks, he's let him off easy. Something must be given. Some payment must be made. But notice it's not even a payment to God. It's a payment to himself. So Gehazi runs after Naaman and makes up this story. All these prophets who suddenly come and they have need of something. And so uh, I know Elisha said he didn't want anything, but can we have something, please, to you know, help these other people? Two sets of clothes and a talent of, gold, uh, of silver. Naaman even like, gives him more. They must think, well, he's in the money here. Two talents of silver uh, would be the equivalent of about 4,000 pounds today based on that weight of silver. He goes off with some new clothes, 4,000 pounds, hides them in the house, thinks he's got away with it, stands in front of Elisha. Elisha says, where have you been? Didn't go anywhere. Was not my spirit with you, verse 26, when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Now, is this the time, Gehazi, to accept that money and to accept clothes? Maybe suggest that there is an appropriate time to accept some things. In fact, actually, just two chapters later in chapter 7, uh, we see the people of the northern kingdom kind of accepting, taking money uh, and clothing uh, from, from the armies of Aram as plunder now, after the Lord uh, delivers uh, a victory. But here he says, is this the time? Is this the time, Gehazi? And that, that declaration. It's a declaration of us saying, no, we come to God the same way. All of us. It's not because of our righteousness, not because of our good deeds. It's not because we were born in a particular place at a particular time. It's not because we have a church culture or a surrounding culture that is superior to anyone else. We're all the same. We all come the same way. We come based on the grace of God that through Jesus is saving death for our sins. That's how we come. 
We don't want to obscure that message. We want others to see it clearly. And so let's pray. We're going to pray just in a moment that this coming year, that wherever we are, that we would seek to know and to show more and more of who Christ is. That others too would come to know and to experience the joy and the life of knowing and following him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a good and a great God. We have sung of that this morning. We've seen glimpses of that this morning and what we've read. And we pray that we would see that more and more. Lord, that we as a church would first recognize the horror of just seeking to, to glorify ourselves. That we would not do that. That we would not dismiss that and thinking that we're beyond that temptation. We would see how easy and subtly it is for us to pursue that. But that our hearts would be captured with a greater vision. Lord, with the glory of who you are, with, with the greatness of Christ. We pray that everything that we say and do, not just in an outward proclamation of the gospel, but even the way that we interact one with another, would increasingly be informed by, uh, would reflect the truth of the gospel. Lord, of your great grace toward us. Lord, and we pray for this community. We pray for the surrounding towns and villages. Lord, that you would open uh, people's hearts. That they would see, that they would come to know that together, Lord, that we would rejoice, Lord, in you. That we would find our hope in you. In a world that is so uncertain as we've prayed about, Lord, we thank you that we can have a certain hope. And that's that no one who puts their hope in you is ever put to shame. And so may we, may we be hoping uh, in you, Lord, looking to you, looking to, exalting, and pursuing Christ, the more and more this coming year. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.